Well, welcome. Uh, I'm Tom Tweed, uh, and this is a panel on normativity in the academic study of religion, which aims to take a step toward reframing the conversation about theology and religious studies. I organized the session and invited our distinguished panelists because I thought it might help to talk more precisely and fully about what unites and divides us as we imagine the nature and scope of the academic study of religion and of the AER. Each of you will have a different take on this problem, or maybe you want to see it as a problem. But from my perspective, I was concerned on the one hand that some theologians seem surprisingly disinterested in religious studies, and, I mean scholarship in religious studies, including historical or social scientific studies or analysis of their own tradition, even though every theologian I know engages scholarship in some other discipline, some theologians even seemed occasionally defensive, complaining that the academy doesn't respect their discipline, that they don't always most fully engage the research of those they want to persuade. On the other hand, I was concerned that religious studies scholars didn't engage constructive religious reflection. They also claimed that the AAR's tent had grown too large and that those who enact values and make normative judgments had no place in it. Despite all the talk in religious studies about positionality in recent years, some religious studies scholars seem to ignore the ways that they too affirm values and make judgments, a point I tried to make yesterday. This is sort of a follow-up to that. So in short, it seemed to me that we, were, we either weren't talking to each other or we were talking past each other, so more talk seemed like a good idea. But who should do the talking and what should we talk about? You probably have your own ideas. Uh, my answer is this. I thought that maybe a prominent religious studies scholar like Ann Taves and a prominent theologian like Graham Ward talking together might help, especially since they have overlapping interests, including about neuroscience and anomalous experiences, and also because they've both navigated theological and religious studies institutional settings. My hunch was that it might help to talk about our deepest values, the commitments that guide us in our work and provide the language we use when we make normative judgments about how scholars ought to think and act. So I asked each to identify their most central epistemic, moral, and aesthetic values that inform their work. I asked them to explore what they share and what they don't. I hope that in the end we might have some hints about how we might reframe the conversation or at least maybe another next step as we wanted to go further toward clarifying diverging and converging commitments. To my delight, our two distinguished panelists went much farther in dialogue than I had originally had hoped. I'm astonished and grateful. They've been in conversation for the past several months, exchanging many drafts and offering comments on each other's thoughts. So what you'll hear is a scripted dialogue, one that's been revised in and through conversation before this. The result of that collaboration is divided into several sections. First, they'll position themselves and talk about institutional context. Second, they disclose their bedrock values and explore how they converge and diverge. Third, they consider disciplinarity disciplinarity, and especially the relationship between theology and religious studies in particular. Finally, the panelists and all of us, there's a microphone in the middle, and if we can, um, if it works out as we hoped, there'll be some time for questions. We'll all think together about the implications for reframing the discussion. Before we get to the conversation, let me introduce our panelists. Ann Taves is professor of religious studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara. She received her PhD from the University of Chicago in 1983. She's held faculty appointments at the Claremont School of Theology and Claremont Graduate School. She's the author of numerous books and articles, including Fits, Trances, and Visions, Experiencing Religion and Explaining Experience from Wesley to James, and Religious Experience Reconsidered, a building block approach to the study of religion and other special things. She held a fellowship at the Center for the Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford in 2008 and 9, 
and was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2011. She's past president of the AAR and president-elect of the International Association of the Cognitive Science of Religion. She's currently supervising the Interdisciplinary Religion Experience and Mind Lab Group at Santa Barbara and working on a book entitled Revelatory Events, Experiences and Appraisals in the Emergence of New Spiritual Paths. That book, which will be coming to press, at, I guess, at the end of December, is a study of the emergence of Mormonism, Alcoholics Anonymous, and A Course in Miracles. When I asked her which bit of, write, which bit of writing she'd like to share with Graham, she chose the introduction to that new book in which she talks about her guiding values. Graham Ward is the Regis Professor of Divinity at the University of Oxford and former head of the School of Arts, Histories, and Cultures at the University of Manchester. He's the co-translator of two of Carl Schmitt's works on political theology and edits several book series, including Christian Theologians in Context and Studies in Theology and Political Culture. Among his books are Cities of God, Cultural Transformation and Religious Practice, True Religion, Christ and Culture, The Politics of Discipleship. And it was a selection from his recent volume, Unbelievable, that Graham shared with Anne for their discussion. Currently, he's engaged in a four-volume work entitled Ethical Life. The first volume, How the Light Gets In, is to be published by Oxford University Press in 2016. Hearing all this impressive biographical information might help you realize what a treat it is for us to have these two fine scholars think aloud with us about these challenging issues. Please join me in thanking them for agreeing to participate. especially since we made them work so hard before we got here. Uh, they'll begin with the scripted dialogue by talking about positioning. Thank you, Tom. Um, yeah, to launch this, let me just say that in reflecting on how we position ourselves intellectually and academically in both our institutional and national contexts, Graham and I realized several things. First, we're both in relatively secure, privileged academic positions, which in both of our cases are congruent with our values and sense of vocation. And we have to acknowledge that many others, whether colleagues or graduate students, are not in that position. So we want to acknowledge at the outset that we realize that where we're positioned gives us a freedom to pursue research in ways that many do not have and that that privilege then is shaping this dialogue. Secondly, in the course of the conversation that we had, we realized that despite the differences in our institutional contacts, Britain and the states and our sense of vocation, we do share a common commitment to the formation of students. We want to prepare them for citizenship in a world in which religion plays a continuing, vibrant, but also challenging role. Our conversation allowed then uh, to surface differences in the way we're seeking to advance this fundamental value in our respective contexts. We began to clarify these differences by talking about values that are central to us in our teaching. And those turned out to be specifically integrity and methodological agility. I wanted to identify integrity as one of my central uh, values. Integrity for me is about telling it as it is, not as you'd like it to be, or you believe your doctrine teaches, or your home church tells you your doctrine teaches. The study of theology can't be com compartmentalized. It's about life, damage, power, violence, and healing. It has to be governed by a notion of wholeness. I see integrity as a moral virtue formed by living, learning, and reflecting upon what we believe and what life shows us. Now, the wholeness is something we will never entirely grasp at all because we're always on the way as circumstances actually change. But why is this important theologically? Well, it's important theologically because theology fosters 
multiple legitimation processes and authority structures in a variety of institutions, doctrines with anathemas attached, internal disciplinary bodies with respect to those teachings, creeds and confessions and sacred texts, appeals to revelation. Integrity then seeks alignments here between bodies of official teaching and one's lived experience, what is shared and recognised to be the case with other people, religious and non-religious. And this calls for a critical and hermeneutical engagement with what is received through these legitimating powers and authority structures. And I want to think here, and thought here when we were doing this, of two concrete examples. First, when I was teaching for a while as a, in a summer school, in a Bible school in Nigeria, uh, the team I went out with from Britain uh, included a number of women. And when we got there, the women were told quite clearly that they were not allowed to teach because of a scriptural injunction. We had to work among ourselves and then with others in the school to come to an understanding of that biblical injunction in a way that enabled women to be taken seriously as co-teachers. And in the end, we failed, and the women themselves were divided. Some teamed up with a man they knew would encourage their participation in any class conversation taught. Most accepted male headship line and worked with the pastor's wives. The second example comes from encountering Christian groups that cannot accept gay relationships as wholesome, authentic, and God-given. Again, a negotiation, not always very successful, takes place because integrity of personal and collective experience of being gay as being as much a divine gift as being straight is resisted. Sometimes this means people have to leave certain groups with a particular theological position because the resistance is so intense, spiritual and somatic well-being is at stake. In my own theological writing, I try to be sensitive to the power we have, the power that's involved in speaking about God. A confession of limits and fallibility is important for allowing spaces for contestation and correction. I understand, I understand your concerns, but ironically, I began articulating a different value in the context of teaching graduate classes made up of students preparing for the ministry and students preparing for an academic career in the humanities, a value that you might view as promoting compartmentalization. In Claremont, I thought of this value as learning to speak in different voices or from different subject positions, specifically in that context, learning to identify and switch between insider and outsider positions relative to a tradition or an academic discipline. In my more recent work, I've referred to this as methodological agility and extended it to include the ability to shift back and forth between humanistic and scientific presuppositions. Methodological agility, as I'm conceiving of it, has the value of encouraging us to explore what experience, beliefs, and practices are like for those who hold them. This would include religious and non-religious students exploring what various religious and secular points of view are like, but from a scientific perspective, it also allows us to compare people's beliefs, practices, and experiences along with our own and to offer explanations for human behaviors that may differ from those that are held by the people we're studying. So I'm curious to know, Graham, what you think. Does it sound to you like cultivating the ability to adopt more than one point of view is just another form of compartmentalization? that undermines integrity and wholeness? Now, if I understand you, methodological agility is not primarily a moral pursuit, though if linked to entering into the standpoint of another, it can become a moral pursuit. I'm sure from your description it's not just a functional procedure that erases personal investments of interest. 
crossing disciplinary boundaries for me is part of an ongoing negotiation that has integrity or wholeness as its goal. Its desire to understand across the borders would then run actually contrary to any compartmentalisation. The compartmentalisation that I'm thinking of is where the dictates of a particular position refuse to encounter the dictates of another position on the basis of believing that we have the truth. I think your approach could help the top evolutionary biologist who accepts mutation is random and adaptation turns on the throw of blind dice and is also at the same time a Christian believer in God as a loving creator. I can see how that would work. After all, scientific method uncovers a world in a certain way and it's ringed with caveats and declarations of what remains unknown. What I'm not sure about is whether your methodological agility can handle power structures and institutionalise legitimation processes that want people to believe what they believe because unity and belonging is actually based on that. I'm not sure then that methodological agility can handle or disrupt processes that can lead to radicalisation. So I suppose I would ask you what goal you have in mind for methodological agility. Is it just to hold and maintain multiple standpoints? What about the institutions entrenching their standpoint as the one that's right and demanding allegiance above all others? So can methodological agility treat ideological socialising structures that go on even within academic disciplines? I understand methodological agility as an ability to distinguish between the different types of aims and kinds of evidence that we bring to different forms of inquiry. So to take your Christian evolutionary biologists as an example, I would want to distinguish between the conclusions that can be drawn on the basis of scientifically accessible evidence. For example, that mutation is random and adaptation turns on the throw of dice and the meanings that religious believers elaborate for themselves or their communities based on that evidence. Thus, I could imagine that with a bit more theological training that stresses the value of integrity and wholeness, your Christian biologist might be able to explain that mutations appear random from a scientific standpoint but that in light of their belief in a creator God, they don't think that they actually are. They would then need to concede, however, at least in my view, that they can't demonstrate their claim scientifically, but are stating it as a matter of faith. In terms of your second question, um, although I haven't developed that aspect as much, I think we can and should consider the impact of the implications of valuing methodological agility in different institutional contexts. Here are two contexts, I think, may be illustrative. I'm assuming from what you've said that the Divinity School at Oxford would support students distinguishing between the presuppositions that govern biological research and those that govern their Christian faith and drawing different conclusions regarding the evolutionary process from these respective standpoints. I can also imagine that those who belong to more conservative traditions might meet with resistance from fellow believers who are unwilling to concede the premises of biological research. I approach methodological agility somewhat differently at UC Santa Barbara, which is a public university, than I did at Claremont, where we had students from a private graduate university and a denominationally sponsored school of theology in our classes. In that context, theologically oriented students had the option of developing their theological views in much the way that you describe. In a public university, where I currently teach, I don't see that as part of our task. Within the public university, theological reflection is primarily an extracurricular activity and, that, and in that sense, perhaps compartmentalized. For me now, methodological agility is more a matter of facilitating the ability to shift between humanistic and scientific perspectives. And in light of your own research, it strikes me 
that we both value this ability to shift between different disciplinary points of view. Yeah, yeah we do. And Oxford, too, is a public university. It's not, and I'm not, directly involved in seminary education. But nevertheless, it is theological reflection that I teach. There are some theologians who aspire to a pure theology for whom uh, that reflection is primarily an internal one with reference only to the coherence of the Christian faith, say, from within that faith. And much systematic theology is actually conceived and done along these lines. And I don't teach theology in that way because I don't accept that there can ever be a purely insider account. The insider position is lived in complex situations and draws upon any number of discourses and sciences to understand those situations which impact upon one's faith. This is why the pursuit of integrity is important, especially when those insider accounts are being legitimated by a variety of institutions from churches to university departments. How does that faith hook up to the world in which it is being held and formed? Acknowledging other perspectives and standpoints is part of recognising that lives are not lived and cannot be lived entirely from within the faith without significant cognitive dissonances. So perhaps there is a difference here between what can be done to shift perspectives in an intellectual project and what this involves in terms of one's own personal development. As somebody who does research which draws heavily on anthropology, sociology, philosophy, cultural studies, I still want to be upfront about my disciplinary and existential standpoint as a theologian. I'm not aiming at a comprehensive view from nowhere. That would compromise my deep sense of actually being limited and fallible. I build an argument. These other disciplinary voices help me to build my argument, enriching it, critiquing it. I can't speak as an anthropologist or as a sociologist. I rely on the expertises of other people. And I'm aware that I've been selective about those expertises that I've drawn upon. And therefore, I am open, positively open, to contestation both within my field and by experts in the fields that I've drawn upon. That's okay. In fact, that even seems healthy to me. We're all involved in continuing debates. But the goal is to draw as close to a truth about what is as possible. And my faith is part of that truth. So you've indicated in our conversations that you think that theology must be pursued within the context of religious studies. Can you explain why you think this is so crucial? Is it primarily a means of keeping an outsider perspective in view? In part, in part. In my view, no Christian theology today can be written honestly and responsibly that does not reflect upon three evident realities. A, that there are other long-standing pieties, many religious. B, that Christianity itself is far from being homogenous. And C, syncretism, cultural syncretism, is unavoidable. Psychology and sociology of religion offer important counterbalances to theology. Critical and literary theory offers essential tools for analysis. A purely insider theological account runs into all the dangers of ideology and the biggest challenge in teaching theology is radicalization. If heuristically theology is an insider's discourse and religious studies is an outsider's discourse, then to recognize the outside is already at play in the inside and vice versa and to amplify the outside within for greater critical awareness is the first step in being responsible to the rest of the global community for one's own believing and speaking. In a parallel fashion, I've been arguing that we need to pursue religious studies 
within the context of, the range, of a range of university disciplines, both in the humanities and in the social and natural sciences. Like many before me, I've been arguing that we need not and indeed should not limit ourselves to descriptive, phenomenological, or historical studies of religion, but can and should seek also to explain what we study in terms that make sense to us. As long as we have a clear idea of what we are explaining based on careful analysis of the insider's point of view, are explicit about our explanatory presuppositions, and signal clearly when we're attempting to explain rather than describe, I think we can advance any explanatory account that we think we can defend on general academic grounds for debate and critique. So I think that theological explanations can be advanced in a university context if they meet these criteria. But I'm not sure what this applies about, implies about the relationship between theology and religious studies. You indicate that you think theology needs religious studies, but does religious studies need theology in the same way? Is the relationship reciprocal? It is. Religious studies does need theology, particularly when trying to understand activities that form the basis for ethnographies or in the interpretation of data and method in fieldwork. Questions put to practitioners of a piety have to understand not only the systems of beliefs that the books will tell them about, but the way that those beliefs are lived interpreted, reinterpreted, and ordered according to certain cultural values. In part, this goes back to my continual concern with radicalization. Due to, due to numerous years of secular thinking and the privatization or the desire for the privatization of religious belief, religious studies still tends to underestimate the power of religious conviction to motivate action and the emotional communities it fosters. Theological conviction is not a private and cannot even be made a private uh, experience because of the public and open nature of worship and ritual. It's also profoundly political. Religious studies that doesn't engage with the variety and variation of belief, even within a single piety, risks a reductionism that falsifies or distorts claims that might be made. No anthropologist would engage in fieldwork in a specific location without first trying to understand the insider perspective and testing that insider perspective against more official and authorised descriptions of a specific culture. So to me, yes, it is a definitely a two-way process. I see what you mean, but I want to insist on what I see as a crucial distinction, which you may or may not embrace, between understanding the theological views, implicit and explicit, of those we're studying, and doing theology. If we're going to study religious people, of course we have to understand their point of view, and this includes in the ethnographically rich way that you describe. I realize that some who study religion from social scientific perspectives, whether psychological or sociological, don't always spend as much time doing this as you might uh, wish, and I agree that this is a weakness, but I take the necessity of understanding the religious views of those I study for granted. As one trained in the historical and social scientific study of religion, I cannot and do not, however, desire to speak as a theologian. I do, however, draw on the work of theologians insofar as their work helps me to better understand those I'm studying. This raises a related point for me given my interest in studying unusual experiences, both as a historian and in light of scientific research. In reviewing my forthcoming book, in which I devote separate chapters to both historical and explanatory approaches, a historian friend characterized the chapters in which I advanced a scientifically ex informed explanation as theological simply because I broke with the historian's role. 
which she and I both understand as focusing primarily on the view of others. But because I broke with the historian's rule to offer an explanation that made sense to me in light of current research. This is why she called me a theologian. So I agree with my historian friend that there's a parallel between doing theology and doing science, in that both advance explanations based on fundamental premises and values. But while there may be some cases of overlap, I assume that in most cases, they presuppose different ultimate causal explanations based on different sorts of evidence. Within the natural sciences, the theory of evolution generally provides the ultimate causal framework. Most religious traditions offer an alternative ultimate causal framework, an alternative narrative of human origins that grounds the tradition as a tradition. The latter accounts tend to be self-authenticating insofar as traditions claim that they were inspired or revealed. The theory of evolution, in contrast, is based on archaeological and biological evidence. This is not to say that these frameworks can't be combined, as, for example, in the case of the Christian biologists we've been discussing. But the biologist, as Christian, brings specifically Christian beliefs to her understanding of evolution. For example, faith that God exists and is responsible for creation, which she holds in common with her co-religionists but not with biologists qua biologists. In saying this, I'm assuming that scientific and theological causal frameworks rely on different sorts of evidence for the ultimate claims they advance, such that the former is more restricted than the latter. Since our task here is to talk about values, I would say that when it comes to invoking ultimate causal claims, I value clarity with respect to the kinds of evidence that can be marshaled for ultimate causal claims and sensitivity to the kinds of evidence that is relevant or admissible in different contexts when advancing such claims. So, Graham, let me conclude by asking whether, in your view, theological integrity requires religious believers to make something like the distinction I'm proposing here between kinds of evidence. Of course it does. I mean, theological integrity does require we distinguish between different kinds of evidence, biological or otherwise. But the distinction you make between understanding the theological views of those we are studying and doing theology won't hold for theologians. The goal of integrity is moral and spiritual. The attunement between the way things are that all the sciences can help us recognize and the place of belief, which is not something that's separate from, but very essentially part of doing theology. As a theologian, I also can't make such a neat distinction between ultimate causal explanations. From where I stand, I'm all too aware that the very categories that appear to self-authenticate theology, revelation, inspired sacred texts, normative claims, etc., are all deeply complex issues that are endlessly debated within theology as it engages with other perspectives about the way things are. So the very grounds for any assurance of self-authentication are contested and contestable, and to my mind, rightly so, because that enables the closed circle of ideology to be continually interrupted. We now turn it back over to Tom. Now we turn it back over to you. So first let me just uh, thank you, my colleagues for such a rich and textured conversation um, and maybe join me in thanking them now. What I'd like to do now is invite the audience um, to come up to the microphone here if anybody would like to ask a question. Uh, we, since we were talking about a dialogue, it seemed odd to not actually have a dialogue. So that if you have a question, please keep it very brief. Um, and I, I might interrupt you if you don't. Um, and then we'll go from there and see how the dialogue goes. Yes. Hello. Thank you. That was incredible. 
such clarity. Um, the dialogical element was very appreciated. And I think it captures this tremendous tension um, within religious studies in here at this very event. Um, so one question I have for you, Anne, is, so if it's humanism and science, um, then logically, would that ultimately mean that there's really no um, enduring place for the study of religion? Um, because you can ultimately situate it in other disciplines. And then the other thing is, uh, Graham, you mentioned, I'm so nervous, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Graham, you mentioned that, um, well, well, a point you made uh, reflected is something which anthropologically, I think when we look closely at the study of religion and our kind of heterogeneous body of scholars, we often find that some of the great intellectuals and some of their profound insights are directly linked to their own kind of spiritual perspectives that resist the sort of humanist and scientific presuppositions. And so then when we reflect on the history of the discipline, we see so many scholars, even up to the present, um, are deeply sort of, you know, uh, informed by their own spiritual uh, outlook. And just lastly, beyond Christian theology and humanism and scientism, there's just a massive kind of body of people who don't fit in either of those camps or those three camps. So what do you do with Hindu practitioners or spiritual but not religious people or um, other forms of spirituality? You know, and do we ultimately privatize that or how do we include that? in the discipline, in its kind of broad, heterogeneous landscape. Thank, thank you so you. much. So, thank you. And let me start with, well, the question you addressed to me is um, whether, uh, I was actually not talking about humanism as, as much as the humanities and social and natural sciences. Um, I conceive of religious studies as a topical discipline, and there's a variety of other topical disciplines in, in university contexts, including things like um, art and political science. So I think that we have a perfect right to be a topical discipline. The tough question for us is the one that Tom always pushes us to talk about, which is what do we mean by religion? Um, my current sense of that is that we might want to think about it in a broad way as having to do with these kinds of different ways of answering these ultimate causal questions that are not reliant that are not reliant on the usual kinds of evidence that is publicly accessible and so i would want to include the spiritual not but not religious and a variety of ranges of answers to those questions within what we study. Um, I don't know where you are now. I, I, I think maybe you got so nervous that I, I couldn't, couldn't quite... Uh, no, it's okay. I, I just wanted to see a face to whom I was actually speaking. That was, um, because I, I didn't feel that it was sharp enough for me to be able to understand quite what you were getting at as far as you wanted me to address. I don't believe in personal spiritual experiences. I don't believe it's, pers I don't believe it's private in that particular way. Because I think that, uh, yes, we have... Um, uh, uh, we take in data and sense things as individual bodies but they, they, they approach through cultures and languages which are far beyond just the one person actually doing it so, so uh, to me there is always a kind of it's not one's own spiritual perspective uh, it will always be informed by communities uh, with, uh, the, to which we belong and to which we participate who will be involved in helping us actually interpret and give a language for those spiritual uh, perspectives. Th thanks so much. I did hear, I, did I hear you, Anne, actually saying that maybe we should define religion, by the way? <laughs> uh, anyway, more this on that is maybe a, this later. This is an <laughs> argument. He's going to nail me on this later. No. I would like to hear that more later, but let, let's, uh, we have lots of people to Support talk. Support for Manchester United. Yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you.
Hi, um, Aristotle Papanikolaou from Fordham University. I'm wondering if the speakers could elaborate and reflect upon the phrase that was used that theology is an extracurricular activity, uh, reducing it to a club-like status within the university. And that's my main question, but related to that, sort of the implication that theology is not a, a, doesn't fall within sort of the discourse of humanism or humanistic studies. Thanks. Great. I'm going to go back there now. So theology as <laughs> rowing club or something. Yeah. Okay, well, I was the one who actually used that phrase, and I was referring to a particular institutional context in a public university where all of the campus ministries are, are located off campus. So it's quite literally extracurricular. We do not have a chaplain in, at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and I suspect not in any of the other UC campuses. So there's no university-sponsored um, religious life. It, and in that sense, it's extracurricular. But I was also emphasizing that I think studying about theology is absolutely a part of what we do in religious studies. And some of my colleagues um, would, you know, we talk about, so can we speak in a theological voice as in a religious studies department? And I think we can do that to some degree I think it's really important when we do it to make clear that we are speaking in that voice, and I don't think it should be the main thing that we're doing. Great. Thanks so much. I appreciate the brevity and clarity of the question. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Hi. I'm Caitlin Carver. I'm at the University of St. Andrews, and I am. I kind of want to bring it back to one of the things that both of you said at the very beginning, which was a common commitment to the development of students, and graduate students in particular, for um, a world that is increasingly dependent on religious literacy and religious engagement. And in my experience, in my graduate education, and I think the experiences of the peers that I have engaged with, I think that these, these distinctions between religious studies and theology are beginning to blur in the way that we're trained and in the way that we're taught. And I'm wondering if you think that is something that is shifting on the whole, and if so, what you think that means. I think that's a, 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 a wonderful question. I think, and, and I wonder to what, to what extent this is, um, again, a contextual difference. Uh, since about the 1990s, the old divisions between theology and religious studies kind of broke down in Britain, mainly through economic reasons. So, in fact, they were put together as being the one thing. And in being put together, then they, you know, had to fight out new syllabuses and new ways of do doing and thinking things, which actually made us kind of appreciate, uh, because we were de-siloed, and it made us appreciate the kind of uh, commonalities, because we were working with them. I mean, this has been good because we've had to reflect upon that. Um, and I do think they are breaking down. I think they're breaking down because of the way in which, uh, call it post-secular, call it what you like, the visibility of religion is so high on the international agenda that, that suddenly, you know, not only is the secularization thesis put into question, but secularization itself is actually being seen as some kind of ideology, I mean, certainly within uh, uh, the French context. So I think that that's, that, that is a really important, and it's really important then, that, that, that these two emphases together, religious studies and the theological, can actually be part of a, the formation of the global citizens that are going to have to cope, as the rest of us are going to have to cope, with new evolving situations in which religion is not going away, absolutely not going away. And, and I think that, that that, to me, is one of the biggest changes, that in fact the idea that religion is going to, it's all superstition and people will just become enlightened and it can be forgotten, that is just not going to be that. It's not going to happen. Yeah, we, we, just to, so we don't miss it, one of the interesting convergences here that you heard quickly maybe at the beginning was they agree on, on a really important fundamental value that, that formation for global citizenship uh, is what they care deeply about in yeah. some ways. Yeah. So that was an unexpected alliance that we, we didn't see coming. Andy, you want to say something about that? Yeah, I was going or to respond else. to the, to the no. specific question in terms of whether or not the boundaries are, are okay. getting blurred. And 
I'm not sure how to answer that question in a broad way. I would just say that insofar as they are or have been, I, I think it's really important to identify the differences between them and that things can coexist in one place if we understand the differences and if we have some, the ability to articulate which position we're speaking from at any given time. Great. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Hello. This is wonderful. My name is Marianne Florian. I'm an Emory student. Yesterday, in a panel discussion on mystical and contemplative practitioners in the academy, Jeffrey Kripal made a little joke about the mark of a successful human, humanistic or humanities thesis being pessimism or a kind of despair. And it was, it was quite a lighthearted thing. Um, but I take it seriously, and I notice that lamentation and dissatisfying circumstances that fuel lamentation, that's one theological mode of writing, but apparently it's also a very prevalent human humanistic mode of writing. As is prophecy or the chastisement of one's social group. So what do either or both of you think about the possibility that humanistic scholarship is voiced following theological discourse models? Thanks so much. Who wants to take that? I, I, yeah. I'd be interested in giving a go. First of all, understanding it fully. Um, I think that you know we, we, we live within... Um, you know, what, what, what some people at Chicago call the natural natural histories of discourses, uh, and so we inherit discourses which, which um, change, but genres keep some of the genres. So there's a lot of um, kind of prophetic lamentation genre going on that's not necessarily uh, being theological in what it's doing, nor related to theology. But in fact, that they the fact that they owe their kind of um, uh, d d d structure uh, and some of their pathos to the theological tradition from which they've arisen and, and to which still inspires that. I think that's really important. I mean, I can think of you know, some of the most Im important and trenchant socialist critiques against rampant capitalism, which I can only, you know, to me, are, are voicing Amos uh, right the way throughout. So, so and, and not actually either alluding to Amos or anything else. So I think that those, those things are still very much alive. There, there is a theological uh, history that we're not going to erase, and in fact it, it is being kind of used all the time in different ways. Let me just add <coughs> one thing to that, and this is based more on uh, knowing Jeff Kripal pretty well, and so just taking a guess at what he meant, might have meant by the despair quote. Um, I know that, that um, he's very invested in, in thinking about the whole meaning-making process and not reducing things to just something. And I agree with him that that's really important, and insofar as that kind of meaning-making process is at the heart of what many theological systems are about, but also something that those who aren't invested in a theological system still need to be thinking about, I think that's a very important part of the humanities and part of what we can think about how we would be fostering whether within departments or extracurricularly. Great, thanks. Yes. Hi, I'm Kathleen Garces Foley from Marymount University. And I wanted to go back to Graham. When you were talking about integrity in your own research, you said um, that all of these perspectives, including your own existential views, need to be put on the table. I'm sorry if I'm not summarizing it well. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's a challenge to religious studies that we don't put our existential views on the table. And I was hoping Anne would respond to that. And I um, want to frame my question, Anne, by saying, is it because the evidence of those views is inaccessible that it's not put on the table? Or is it because it's not relevant to the arguments being put forth? Thanks. Yeah, great question. I was, I was in a um, 
sat in on a session yesterday that was on the big tent issue. And one of the distinctions that was being made there that I think is really important is between practice and identity. And I think that your question, um, when we talk about our existential views, we can think of those as they inform the, the research practices that we're doing and as they inform our, the various identities that we have. So I'm increasingly being very clear in my writing um, that when I'm adopting a naturalistic kind of standpoint that takes as a foundation the kind of presuppositions that are embraced in scientific research. So that would bracket out theological claims based on revelation. But I don't find it relevant in that context to talk about whether I believe in any particular revelation or not. Um, and so in that, in that context, I don't see it, it's a relevance issue. As long as I'm bracketing that, and being clear about where I'm starting, I think that's pretty much sufficient. But then we can get into questions of identity, whether or not that's relevant to talking about the presuppositions we bring to the practices that we're actually engaging in, whether it's the practice of doing theology or the practice of doing the study of religion. Having said all that, <clears throat> I think in your new, the forthcoming book, you actually say a little bit more about values and the kind of, you're a little bit more forthcoming, maybe you don't agree, than your previous work, and it's, it's a gesture towards saying this is, this is what my commitments are. Um, and that, that was important yesterday in, in, in what you were saying, Tom, because it, you know, we did, what, what has happened in, um, in humanity, it does seem to me, is the recognition that we do come with human interests and values, that, that there is no view from nowhere. I mean, at one time, you know, the, the scientific par paradigm kind of ruled, and now, in fact, and I think a lot of that has to, to do with uh, class and identity coming, uh, class and race coming in that actually is making, uh, making it, humans just have got to, to foreground, that you've got to foreground those human interests. And that, in fact, you know, even those, those, those uh, any, any kind of science from any, any uh, human science coming from a uh, perspective, comes from a perspective, it has, uh, it's making normative claims, and it has hidden values. And not to, be a, not to make those explicit, actually, is um, a lacking, lacking in the responsibility. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We just did a whole dialogue where I talked about what my values were, okay? Methodological agility, we remember. It was on right. the slide. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about a whole bunch of values that I hold. But you didn't hear me saying, do I believe in God or not? Do I belong to a religious community or not? Am I spiritual but not religious or whatever, okay? Mm -hmm. That's what I didn't say. But I talked a whole lot about my values and commitments. About your epistemic values, about those that have to do with knowing. Right, and as yeah. they relate to my academic research and my right. position yeah. as an academic. Right. <clears throat> Thank you so Got much. Um, I think I will not intervene again, but um, <laughs> if I do, just, just make scrunchy faces and help me remember. Yes, sir. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. That's all right. Uh, Andrew Dole from Amherst College. I'm going to try to be outrageous. I'm not sure that I'm going to succeed. I'll be a little disappointed if I don't. Um, so I don't know what theology means when the, when the term is used, um, really, but I know what it has meant in some uh, historically well-attested examples, and I know Schleiermacher's position best. And Schleiermacher's position was that theology is a positive science, the end of which is to provide resources for church leadership. Now my question is, is there any promise uh, to a properly secularized descendant of that view uh, at the present time. Oh. Uh, here's what I take a negative answer to look like. A negative answer would look like something like this. Look, qua scholar of religion, qua professor of religious studies, I've got no business making uh, any possible result of my work within religious communities, within religious institutions, within religious traditions, an object of my interest. And I've got, a fire, I've got to build a firewall between whatever it is that I'm doing and, whatever, and some impact of what I'm doing on the business of religion as it's practiced. 
Now, I, I think I understand that position. I understand reasons for it. It seems, you know, straightforward and, and safe. I don't know that I like it. I don't, I don't know that it leads to uh, good results. So I, so I hope that I don't have to have that position. Okay. okay. I, I got an, a response for you that I think is better, which is I've been thinking for a while um, about what we might call applied religious studies. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's applied anthropology. There's um, actually an AAR task force on applied religious studies now. There is? Yeah. Oh, okay. I missed it. <laughs> I promised I would not intervene, but it seemed appropriate, didn't it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we talk a lot, but obviously not enough. <laughs> um, Anyway, so yeah, I've been thinking about that. Actually, it dawned on me five years ago when I was in Tom's position that we have these things within the Christian theological tradition, all this practical theology, which is all about applying Christianity in all sorts of contexts. And it got me thinking, why isn't there some kind of analog that starts out of the presuppositions that I would see in forming religious studies? And then talks about how that learning can be applied in a whole bunch of contexts. And I'm figuring this is a fantastic or could be a potentially good vehicle for expanding the reach of what our departments do, um, explaining why it's important, fostering double majors. Um, anyway, so that's where my thinking's going right now. <laughs> Can I just, just going to be brief here, I suppose. Part, I mean, I'm thinking of the Schleimacher connection. Thinking, what's changed is that uh, theology that's done within the academic, within, say, certainly within Oxford, and its relation to the church has broken down. I mean, it's just not there in the same way. Furthermore, I think in most, in a in, in number of uh, countries, UK, there are probably more Christians that are not members of institutions and churches than there are Christians who are actually attending them. So in fact, the, 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 the training of people in, in the discipline of theology within the university is culling people from all sorts of kind of things, and it's not necessarily has anything to do with leadership of the church. Great. Um, I'm aware of the time, and we have, we have two folks who want to ask a question. I want you to each just briefly ask the question. And then we'll do some final wrapping up and ask my colleagues if they have final reflections, just so that we at least hear your question. Happily. Um, thank you for a very thought-provoking discourse. I'm wondering, based on what I've heard today, if you, Anne and Graham, in your correspondence and conversation with one another, believe yourselves to share a common concept of what is meant by public or divergent concepts of public. Great. Thank you. Yes, sir? Uh, my question is just mainly to Graham, um, just on this um, issue of different kinds of evidence, and you were resistant to the idea that scientific and theological evidence can be sort of neatly distinguished. I just wanted to push back on that a bit um, by saying that I think they can be distinguished in at least the following way. You have all the body of scientific evidence for, you know, bio biology, cosmology, etc. Um, from that body of evidence, you don't automatically get, say, a body of Christian uh, doctrinal absolutely. beliefs. So absolutely. you need extra evidence that science rules out. And that way, I think Anne was right in saying that scientific evidence seems more restricted than, than theological evidence. Thank you so much. Um, you can pick one of those questions to answer or any concluding reflections you have. You were making scrunchy faces, so you want to answer one of those questions? No, the scrunchy face was more that, as far as I know, we, Graham and I didn't think about our concept of the public. Uh, I was trying to mask that, but I thought... <laughs> no, we, we didn't. But it's a really interesting question as to, um, you know, what, what is the conception of the public there? Whose public are you actually talking about? Um, but that's a question also, you know, what public sphere is really available as the public sphere anymore? And how does that differ between national contexts and how does that... how does you know, the internet and global modes of yeah. communication change that. Sounds like that's a very, actually very rich kind of yeah. um, conversation to have. And so maybe as a concluding remark to just say that the whole question of what the kinds of distinctions that we were discussing and trying to make, uh, to, 
how far do those extend into other national contexts and into these wider global communications networks is probably something we should be thinking about. Yeah. I, I don't have anything. I, I don't have anything left okay. to say, Tom. Good. <laughs> well, I think we both we agree that they've said quite enough and really spectacular. And I guess the next step will be left to all of you. But I hope you're, you're convinced, as I am, that this kind of careful, precise conversation. Um, more light than heat is really useful, and we're deeply indebted to both of you. Um, please join me in thanking Brandon. <laughs>